Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the paranormal experiences of children. My guest is Dr. Bruce Solheim, who is professor of history at Citrus College in Glendora, California, where he teaches a course on personal paranormal history through their continuing education program. Dr. Solheim is the author of six books dealing with political science and history, and he has written two books about his own personal paranormal experiences. They are called Timeless and Timeless Deja Vu. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you for having me, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be with you. One of the things that you pointed out to me uh, with regard to the courses you teach on personal paranormal history is that you find students are eager to enroll because it gives them a safe space to discuss their own personal experiences. It, exactly. Yeah, that's what I found. Uh, it was actually my wife, Ginger, who said, now you're probably going to find that uh, people are going to want to do that. So I was so busy preparing the course, I didn't really think what was going to be their main motivation. And that is it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're young and old, uh, and they've all had experiences, and they want someone safe. And I even had two colleagues. I had a, a, one of the librarians and a math professor who took the class. And they were funny. The math professor, when he was talking to other colleagues and myself, He'd kind of look around and see if anybody's looking, He's, and then he would tell me his experience. And I've had other people do that, too, even people who haven't taken the class. They, they've they heard about it, uh, you know, staff members and stuff, and they want to ask me questions. So it, that's what it is. It's a safe space mm -hmm. for people to discuss their experiences. You uh, grew up in a family where your mother encouraged you uh, to uh, begin to uh, at least acknowledge the kind of psychic experiences that I presume are normal for most children. Yes, she did. Uh, my, both my parents were from northern Norway, and my mother was very psychic. She wasn't like a practicing psychic, but uh, she did encourage it. My father was rather uh, practical and didn't encourage it at all. In fact, when my mother and I, when I was little, being very little, I, I remember having playing cards, and we'd, we'd read each other's minds, and we'd get a pretty good hit rate. And we do it until my father said, that's enough. Uh, okay, that's foolish. Don't do that. And he did it after we hit a couple in a row. Then he'd say, okay, that's it. I think it scared him a little bit. And he was so practical. And, and she was an artist, so that's mm -hmm. what – she was very open to it. And uh, all my experiences, I could talk to my mom. I wouldn't necessarily talk to my dad mm -hmm. about these things. Now, you mentioned your parents grew up in a very isolated yes. part of northern Norway. Yeah, yeah, on an island 200 miles above the Arctic Circle called Undea, which means Duck Island, although there's no ducks on the island, so maybe they ate them all, I don't know. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's very isolated. Uh, when, we, when I first went to Norway, I was four years old, lived at my grandmother's house, which still exists. My brother and my two nephews uh, and I have the house still, about 200 acres farm. It's not farmed anymore. but uh, th So that was the first time I went there, and there was no way to get to the island except by ferry boat or by air, or that was it. Mm -hmm. Now they have a bridge to the island, and there's no hospital on the island, so it's, it is very isolated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we talked about it earlier, you described to me how in this 
context, an isolated island 200 miles mm. above the Arctic Circle. It, people who lived there took psychic experiences for granted. It, it was very normal. It was very normal for people. So, the, really, the paranormal is more normal than than, than people mm-hmm. think. And, uh, you know, the experiences that I had there with my parents and also my relatives and cousins, I'm related to so many people on that island. Uh, it's not surprising to them when you talk about, oh, I saw a ghost or, you know, this or, you know, any type of paranormal stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the belief in, uh, some people would call it superstition, others maybe not. Troll stories, you know, all that stuff. You grow up with all that stuff. And mm-hmm. It all seems very natural, and I didn't think it was strange. And and uh, so, you know, reading my mother's mind with cards, it didn't. It, none of that seemed unusual mm-hmm. or strange. It just and seemed very I'm normal. Under the impression your father, who didn't really uh, encourage any of this, wasn't necessarily a disbeliever. No, I don't think so. But he he was a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. So I think the psychic part of me uh, is from my mother. The storyteller part is from my father. He was a sailor. He left home at age, I think it was age thirteen. He left home. He worked on a fishing boat, uh, and then he uh, joined the Merchant Marines when he was old enough to do that. Then the Norwegian Navy. So he was a sailing man. And uh, I remember sitting around in the living room. And we had a globe uh, on our table, mm-hmm. and uh, which is great. I think all homes should have a globe. You know, it's just for kids. It's so important. I remember looking at that and spinning it around, and I put my finger on a spot on the globe, and I'd say, "Have you been there, Dad?" And he said, "Yeah, I've been there." And they told me a story uh-huh. about, you know, uh, Morocco or Antarctica. He'd been to Antarctica. He'd been to Karachi. You know, he'd been everywhere around the world. So, uh, I, you know, it was. So I grew up with that. That kind of acceptance of the paranormal and also the storytelling tradition. So, yeah, he did offer that part. He's very practical mm-hmm. otherwise, but he could tell a, a story. And in, in your course on uh, personal paranormal history, mm-hmm. you, I presume one, one of the things you're trying to do is to get your students to understand that when they have these experiences, there's some meaning to be found, that there's a story there. Yes. And, and when they, yeah, we start the class off by kind of defining some of the paranormal terms. You know, what is telepathy? What is telekinesis? What is mediumship? You know, all this type of stuff. And so they can get a baseline because a lot of them don't really, they've had experiences, but they don't know what it's called. They don't know what's going on or what the theories are behind it. So we do that. And, and then, uh, when they share their stories at the beginning, kind of their life story, which sometimes can, I have to cut them off and say, okay, we got to go to the next person. Uh, cause they just say one thing after another. I, uh, I do have to, uh, you know, I give them a framework for understanding what these things, because a lot of them don't know what, why these things are happening or mm-hmm. what it's called or maybe even that other people have had similar experiences and they find out, oh, I'm just like this other person. And, yeah. and so that it, it, it's, it's, so it's very personal. So the idea that it's personal, you know, a, a paranormal personal history classes is the essence of and that's really how i teach history too Mm -hmm. that all history is very personal Mm -hmm. and now you've written two books on your own Mm -hmm. personal paranormal history with dozens of experiences yeah the first book uh timeless uh had 34 experiences uh timeless deja vu had 31 experiences Mm -hmm. and the third book it's a trilogy is is will come out next year hopefully called uh timeless trinity and it will have probably another 32 experiences. So I held some back. The first book, I wanted to test the waters because mm-hmm. I'm an academic and I, I wanted to see what would happen. So I, some of the more bizarre stories I kind of held back 
And uh, it's not that I toned it down, but I just kind of saved those in reserve just to see what would happen. Mm -hmm. And it was well received by my colleagues, by the college, by readers. So I figured, okay, I'll venture a little bit further with the with the second one. And uh, and then with the third one, that's going to be the probably the most spiritual of all of them. I'm kind of putting it together in a in a larger sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, so so it'll go even further. I'm sticking my neck out even further with the, with the third one. Um, but I, I would say that, um, you know, the, the most important thing about it is, is that I want people, with the first book, the, the theme behind it was I don't want people to be afraid, so afraid of dying that they're, that they're not going to live their lives. And that's kind of the, if, if you could pick a theme, that would be one of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the second one, it's, it's to not be afraid to learn more about what's going on and, and, and to also know that there's a darker side to this stuff, too, so kind of a, a warning. With the third one, I think it's going to be a more holistic kind of bringing everything together. Uh, I haven't totally formulated yet because the stories are still coming out. And then things keep happening to me. Mm -hmm. So when I was younger and, and, you know, I just, I, it's like I had a big radar dish over my head and things just happened. Uh, some people have called me a paranormal lightning rod. So that's kind of what it was, but I had no, I don't want to say the word control. But management, I had no management of it. Mm -hmm. uh, now I've learned to manage it so I can sleep better at night mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Well, I would imagine when it comes to young people, children, mm -hmm. that uh, maybe one in a hundred, one in a thousand, I don't mm -hmm. know, is going to be very gifted uh, in yeah. terms of their uh, parapsychological capacities. And yeah. they will be like a lightning rod. They'll have many yeah. experiences. And as, as you've learned from your own students, there are... Mm -hmm aren't often safe places where people can discuss these things. That, that's true. You know, you can be ostracized. And, 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 and then, well, you know, the first thing that happens when you go to school is that, uh, you know, they tell you, well, your imaginary playmates, they're not real. So you, you have these real kids in the classroom. So let's not talk about that. Uh, and so they challenge that mm -hmm. at first. And then you learn to adapt. Kids are pretty adaptable. And they'll say, okay, I won't talk about my two imaginary playmates. In my case, it was John and Johnny. Mm -hmm. I had two. One was older and one was younger, which is kind of a whole weird mm -hmm. dynamic. But um, so, did you see them visually yeah. in your mind? They were like I would call them apparitions. They somewhere between, and I've seen actual uh, physical manifestation, you know, a ghost and mm -hmm. an apparition before. I would say they're somewhere between, uh, you know, a dream state and an actual awake physical ap uh -huh. uh, apparition. Almost like a hypnagogic state. Yes. Which children can probably easily go in. Slip in and out so easy. And, yeah. and it was, uh, it was so natural to me. And I, my brother was nine years older. My sister was 15 years older. So she wasn't even living in the house. Mm -hmm. My brother didn't want to really play with me. So I, oftentimes I was, I was playing at home by myself. So, uh, these two playmates were, were pretty nice to have, pretty convenient, and they did what I wanted to do. And uh, I was always a, a little bit of an unusual kid in that I remember as a six-year-old, I wanted to ride my bike to the graveyard. And I would get my little friends to go with me sometimes, but other times they were spooked out by it. And you I, mean your r real friends? My real friends, yeah, my imaginary <laughs> friend I could take any time. Uh -huh. But uh, so we'd pack a lunch, and I'd, we'd go have lunch at the graveyard, which I thought was, I guess, is pretty unusual, although I thought it was fine. Mm -hmm. And uh, after a while, they just started, uh, we had one experience there at a lake that was behind kind of the mausoleum. Mm -hmm. 
Now, and we're talking about not Norway here. You, you no, this actually, is in Seattle. You grew in, up in, in Kenmore, which is the north end of Seattle, uh-huh. north end of Lake Washington, yeah. that area. So you're basically an American. Yes, yes. I was born in America. My brother and I were born in Seattle. My sister and my eldest brother, uh, who died during World War II, were born in Norway. And my parents are born in Norway. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So uh, and now it's just me and my brother. Parents are gone. My sister's gone. Yeah. And uh, like I said, my eldest brother died during World War II, so he would be in his seventies. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. At this so point. you're there at the graveyard with your friends. Yes, and we're having lunch, and I remember there was this very large statue of Jesus, uh, kind of in the center of the graveyard, and I remember that it, it was kind of a sad face Jesus. I don't. I didn't, I, there's different motifs, you know. With mm-hmm. This and. And uh, I remember having a discussion with my friend. I wrote about it. Uh, he said, well, I don't know if Jesus would, because he was Catholic. And I was, I was Lutheran, you know. That's typical of Norwegians, you know, to be growing, growing up as Lutherans. And um, so he said, I don't know if Jesus would like us to be here, you know, with, you know, here in this graveyard. Are we being disrespectful? And I, I said, no, all these people here like us to be here. They want us to be visiting. So it's like I felt like I was, I wanted, I wanted to be there and I knew that I was welcome there. Mm-hmm. So I said, I, I think that's what Jesus would want too. So he agreed with that for a while until we had this spooky experience at the lake and then that was it for him. So what happened? Well, it was a, <laughs> I would say, I would classify it as kind of a cryptid experience. Uh, so there's this, we called it the swamp pond, not really a proper lake because there's too many lily pads. It was a little too green for mm-hmm. swimming. And it was below the mausoleum. So you had to go through the woods on this dirt, uh, path on our bikes and, and, and go down by the swamp pond. Well, we were down there and we started, it was getting kind of late in the day. And it's kind of a dark area anyway with a lot of big trees and vines and, lily pads so it's a little spooky anyway we started hearing something on the other side of the lake crashing around in the sticker bushes and in the you know just like a sound of something big over there mm-hmm. and uh i i was really interested and my friend said let's get out of here and and i, I said okay well yeah we'll get out. and it kept coming around the lake we didn't see it but we heard it mm-hmm. coming closer so i said okay i think it's a good time to leave and uh he took off really fast up up on the the dirt path, and I started off. My chain fell off, so I was a little nervous. You know, I trying to get the chain back on those old bikes we had. Always the chain was always coming off, and um, I finally got back on it. And by the time we got up to the top, I looked around, and there was a shadowy figure by these. I don't know if you'd call them crypts or whatever these these concrete things. I think they put in the graves. You know, there's like mm-hmm. a stack of them there. Mm-hmm with sticker bushes around them, and Mm -hmm. some teenagers had spray-painted some stuff on them. uh, There was a dark figure there, kind of on its hind legs, and it was I I couldn't really quite make it out what it was, because it was kind of dark. It it looked like some kind of a... It could have been a very large dog, like a wolfhound, but it was on its back legs, or who knows what it was. But it terrified us so so much. I never went back to the, the lake, and my friends never went back to the... I still went to the, you know, by myself to the graveyard, but they wouldn't go to the, mm-hmm. even to the graveyard. But we never went back to the swamp pond. So, uh, so you were frightened. It, it did frighten me, yeah, because I, and I think part of it was how frightened my friend was too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was, I wasn't frightened in the graveyard, but I was because I kept going back there. But the uh, whatever this creature was, or large animal, or whatever the thing was, I. I it, if it was a dog, it was a giant wolfhound, mm-hmm. you know, which you, they're not too common. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the, the fear of uh, ghosts, the fear of the yeah. boogeyman uh, is mm-hmm. part of a child's experience. Yes. yes. And, and 
So, you know, I think I was more accepting. I wasn't as fearful as my friends, although I knew I had a feeling that, you know, some of them just say, well, that they, these things aren't real. They were trying to convince themselves. I, I knew they were real, but I also knew based on what my mom had told me that uh, it probably wasn't going to hurt you. And I think I was more accepting of it. And I was more accepting of the fact, you know, because I was familiar with, you know, the graveyard and not afraid being there, I think that maybe helped me accept the ghost stories. And, of course, my dad told, he told stories. Sometimes they were ghost stories from fishing and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the way he looked at it, it was just more of a tall tale, Mm -hmm. you know, where my mom, she knew it was real. And so did I. (laughs) Let's go back to your imaginary friends. You use the term imaginary, which suggests that they're really, uh, you, you know, these are some kind of fantasy that you concocted. Yeah, I, I, I have a feel. Well, I use that term because that's probably what would be what most people would say. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that there was some there was some entity to it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, Johnny. There was John and Johnny. Johnny. It's kind of funny. I did both have variations of John, but John was a kid my age, and um, so he was he was just a regular kid. But he he was you know I guess people would call him imaginary. I just called him my playmate, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Johnny was different. Johnny was, um, or I mean, that's Johnny. John uh, was older, mm-hmm. and he didn't really play with us, but he kind of hung around with us. And he wasn't threatening, but he wasn't friendly either. He was kind of a protector in a way. I kind of thought of him as kind of like somebody who would watch kids that are playing, you know, babysitting or whatever. So that was John. Later, I came to call him Big Bad John. Uh but he really wasn't bad. He just had kind of a that kind of disposition. And I think there was a there popular was a song. song from yes. those years. Yeah, Big Bad John, and and really Big Bad John wasn't bad. He sa- he uh, risked his he gave his life to save all the miners out of the mine. So, yeah. So it's it's kind of interesting that that's uh, mm-hmm. that's who he was. But uh, you know, I I saw them. Other people didn't see them. Well, you know, uh, William James Mm -hmm. uh, has suggested that when when it comes to spirits, Mm -hmm. that you've got what he called two wills. You have a desire. You want to have some playmates. Right. And, and of course, young children have an imagination. You can imagine playmates, but there might also be an autonomous spiritual entity Mm -hmm. that fills and steps in and kind of cooperates yes. with the uh, imagination, mm-hmm. uh, the imaginal image that you have right. created. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may know the philosopher Henri Corbin uses mm-hmm. that word imaginal to mm-hmm. distinguish it from imaginary, to right, right. suggest it has a little bit more, uh, maybe a lot more ontological status. Right, right. And and I think it is kind of a meet halfway kind of a thing, mm-hmm. which, you know, when, when I do mediumship, that's what I'm doing. You're ra- raising my level of vibration or whatever people want to call it, uh, I have to meet them, the spirits halfway. Mm-hmm. You can't just stay like we are right at this moment. You have to get to a higher uh, point. And I think kids can do that very easily without knowing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And based on the need of a playmate and maybe the need for a protector to watch over us so we don't have to worry while we're playing. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I use the term imaginary, but to me, they weren't imaginary. So, mm-hmm. they were very and, real. But at some point, did you outgrow them? What? I think school. Yeah, the more I was at school, and the, as we grew up, and uh, friends who weren't, you know, you know, they kind of said, "Well, that you know, that's not cool. You know, you can't be uh, 
talking about John and Johnny, you know, here we are right here, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, so I, I guess I, I had less need for them mm -hmm. as I grew older, um, as I grew, you know, had more friends. And, they were, and there's a lot of pressure on children to grow up. Yes. Be, be a big boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And, uh, it, you know, the difference now with my children, you know, uh, is that we seem to be out, well, especially in the Pacific Northwest, we were outside a lot. So we we had an opportunity to just imagine all kinds of situations and types of playing out in the woods or whatever. So the woods were a big part of my growing up. And the woods could be both a great place of adventure, and it could also be a very dark and foreboding place at night, mm -hmm. especially. So there was a fear factor there, too, which is kind of yeah. neat that it's it serves both purposes. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. in the courses you teach, personal paranormal history, mm -hmm. I imagine... Uh, uh, many of the students want to talk about experiences from their childhood. Yeah, that's usually where they start. When we go around the room at first and we do the introductions, I always give them a chance to do that the first class. Uh, that that's They usually flow in chronological order. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, some don't. Some skip around and then I have to, like, okay, that's enough time. Let's move on to the next person. And uh, uh, And sometimes they get kind of blocked. I have a few people who will say something, but they're... I'm not sure what that is. It's almost like they're afraid to say what it is, especially I had one couple, very nice people, and they had a lot of conflict on what they could say. What And, and I think some of it was kind of their, their religious upbringing. They were afraid to acknowledge these things, but mm -hmm. yet they were brave enough to take the class. So it was they were trying to overcome that fear. So they say a couple of things and then as the class progressed we uh th they shared more and more mm -hmm. as the class went on so they and and now they've taken the class uh, i think they've taken it three times some of them have taken the class yeah i think five of them have taken the class three times so. uh, and you've only offered it so far three, three times three times yeah. yeah yeah so it's the sort of thing that the students want to keep coming back yeah so I, that means i i change it up every time i don't do the same thing every time mm -hmm. and I, even in my regular history classes i try to incorporate current events into everything that mm -hmm. we're doing and find historical roots to it. So, uh, and then we bring in new guest speakers too, mm -hmm. which is a big part of it. Uh, and, and, uh, so that keeps it fresh. And like, for instance, one time I brought in a, a friend of mine who's a professional magician because I wanted them to talk about what, to talk to me about, you know, black magic or what was called black magic or whatever. And mm -hmm. what you do on stage, you know, is there ever a crossover? Are there, professional stage magicians who do, you know, other kinds of things, you know, the appeal to other forces or whatever. And it was a fascinating presentation. He did a little lecture. He brought some friends who were, uh, that he was teaching as magicians. They did some magic and he, he talked about it and he said, sure enough, there are some professional magicians that are not just doing tricks. They also use some paranormal abilities oh. as well, mm -hmm. although they won't really acknowledge it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, other than imaginary playmates, what are mm -hmm. the uh, typical kinds of experiences that people reported to you from their childhood? Uh, a, a lot of it is, uh, I would say, stuff in their in their homes, you know, poltergeist activity, uh, uh, ghost activity, things like that. It's the most common. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them have more serious things, like some things that border on kind of demonic type stuff. Uh, and uh, so those are the, mostly what people are interested in talking about. Some of them... Um, have had experiences of, you know, precognition and, and stuff like that. And I don't think anybody's talked about telekinetic experiences, but, uh, uh, so it, that's basically what they mm -hmm. start off with. And then as the class proceeds and they see 
what the whole menu of things that are, that can happen, they, they go, oh, okay, I think that's happened too. And then when you add in, uh, you know, I add in the uh, um, UFO, alien abduction experience, all those things. Because I have guest speakers with that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, then some people will, will bring those experiences too. Once so, they've heard a, a lecturer yeah. talk about an yeah. experience, it may remind them. That yeah, then something is unlocked. It's like there's uh-huh. an unlocking of a story. I always think of, you know, uh, it's a story within a story within a story. It just, just it doesn't seem to, be, seem to be an end to it, mm-hmm. and you know, which makes it so interesting. You know, this class is just... I always think, like, uh, teaching is the best way to learn. Mm-hmm. Even if you... Even if you don't, you don't feel like completely prepared to teach this class, you are going to learn. And that's how I started in history. The first history class I taught was in graduate school. I was a doctoral student and I had 85 students and I was, got in front of them and, and I had not been taught anything about the theory of education or teaching. It was just mm-hmm. go teach them. Yeah. And you just have to figure it out and, and, out of, uh, you know, sink or swim, basically, is what it is. And you realize you, you can only be who you are and uh, share your experiences. So that's how my theory of history, you know, this personal history came about. It's like, I'm going to share what I've experienced and tie it in to these historical events and what has happened to my family and the, the concept of war. Which When you're teaching American history, the concept of war is just, you know, all over the place. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I figured it out pretty quick. So I figured the same with the paranormal class, you know, I came out with the book, then do the class, get these incredible guest speakers, and I'm learning from my students, I'm learning from them, I'm learning as we go through this experience together. So mm-hmm. I just, I'm looking forward to that, that doing that class for many years to come. Now, you mentioned that uh, some of your students report experiences that seem akin to a, a demonic yes. uh, encounter of some sort. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I imagine uh, even the use of a term like demonic suggests yeah. that they've been influenced by their religious yeah. education to think that yeah. way. Yeah, and, and even my own experiences, you know, I've had a couple of what could be classified as demonic. Now, as I've gone through a, a lot of this, I'm starting to question some of that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, for instance, one uh, uh, very scary experience, I was in Germany, and I was a soldier, a young soldier in Germany. And, uh, I was, uh, my, I, my girlfriend at the time later became my wife. I was in her room waiting for her to come back off of her shift. And, uh, I decided, well, I'm going to go do something. So I went to the, uh, for the soldiers, they have like an arts and crafts center. So I went in there and I was fashioning, you know, using clay and making a model of, of a head. And then I suddenly it came out. It's kind of this demonic looking thing. And, uh, the oh, yes. instructor came out. It was almost like I was doing it automatically or whatever. And the instructor came out and he looked at that and he said that, I think I've seen that before, that head before. I've seen that. And then he went back and he had this, uh, I think it was like a, uh, a book of demonology or whatever. And he came out and he identified what it was. I can't remember what he said it was. But, uh, a particular demon. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I said that's what it is. So I brought it back to my girlfriend's room <laughs> and, uh, she had this little nightstand with a mirror and I said, I'm going to scare her when she comes in. So I put, it, it, this is all foolishness. You know, yeah. one of the things I teach my students, don't fool around with stuff you don't understand, especially if it's something, you know, that could be very harmful to you. So anyway, I put this demonic head on her nightstand. I put some candles around it and I was just sitting there waiting for her to come back off of her shift and, uh, as I'm sitting there looking at it, 
Sure enough, its its mouth started to move, mm-hmm. and it's just it's clay, it's raw yeah. clay, but it's it, you know it's a solid form. Mm-hmm. Its mouth started to move, and it started mumbling this kind of grumbly mumbling, and it was it was really frightening. You yeah. were probably in, entering into a hypnagogic state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was I was I go okay, this is a little bit more serious than I thought, and just at that point she comes in, my girlfriend comes in, she looks at it, and she said. Uh, Where'd, where'd that come from? And I said, well, I was at the, uh, you know, I was just trying to fool around, you know, maybe scary or whatever. And, uh, I made it at the Arts and Crafts Center. And she said, you know, I made, I made a head like that when I was in high school and I got rid of it. It looked exactly like that. I think we should get rid of it. I mm-hmm. think this is, this is horrible. And I said, well, you don't understand. The thing talked to me. And she goes, ah, she screamed <laughs> yeah. and she grabs it and she opened the window and it was like a third story in this mm-hmm. old, these old barracks. In Germany, uh, army barracks, and there was a dumpster down there, and she threw it out into that dumpster. So that was the end of that. Mm-hmm. Now, but, I know in your book you mentioned that you and your girlfriend at that phase mm-hmm. of your life, mm-hmm. you were dabbling in uh, magic. Yeah, she she was. Ceremonial uh, magic. It's interesting. When I wrote the book, of course, you have to get permission of people when you write these yeah. books and stories. So otherwise, you got to change the whole scenario and names. But I got her permission. But what's funny is that she doesn't remember that she was into that either. She says, no, I wouldn't have done that. So I had to make it, it's all me. But uh-huh. yeah, it was her too. So, but yeah, it's just, I didn't understand mm-hmm. any of it. I just was mm-hmm. dabbling around. And and what's interesting is uh, we lived in an, a former Nazi barracks, mm-hmm. you know. So it was, there was a bad vibe in that building mm-hmm. anyway. I think it was, I don't think it was SS. I think it was Luftwaffe because there's an air, airfield there in Mannheim. And uh, so there's a, a weird a weird feeling in that barracks anyway. Mm. So who knows what was you know entering into this thing? And of course, with my ability to pick up stuff, you know what was what was happening. You've but, had mediumistic uh, yeah. abilities since your childhood. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Since age four that I remember, it first started with a kind of an angelic experience, kind of a, a healing experience. Uh, can you describe? Yeah, that? and it was in northern Norway and the island that I described. Uh, no hospitals anywhere. I came, uh, was, we were living with my grandmother for nine months and, um, I loved it because my grandmother spoiled me. But, uh, anyway, so I was out playing and it was the winter time. So it was the dark time as the Norwegians call it. It's dark for a couple months of the year. The sun doesn't come up. So I was outside and I remember my neck getting stiff. I had a really high fever. My, my body was really achy. So I felt like I'm really getting sick. So I made it home and, uh, I, I got into the kitchen and my grandmother looked at me and she said, what's wrong? And I, I said, you know, I'm sick. I can't move my, I couldn't move my head. She said, well, she had this little bed in the kitchen, in this old country kitchen. She had this little bed where she would take naps when she was making food, I guess, because it's too hard to go up and down the stairs. Uh, so she uh, put me in that bed and I remember I kept getting sicker and sicker. And then the relatives would come next door and they, of course, they're all like the Grim Reaper, you know. They're all saying, oh, this is what happened to Sven when he got polio. This is what happened, you know. And this is what happened to uh, your, talking to my mother, this is what happened to your first child. Didn't he get sick and he died the next day? So here I am listening to this. I'm four years old, but I understand what they're saying. And I'm just crying and, and, and I just kind of cry myself to sleep in this little bed. Well, I wake up and it must have been, I think they just let me sleep there. And there wasn't anybody in the kitchen, but I woke up to this bright light in the ceiling. There's like these beams in these old farmhouses. And I looked up there and there was this bright light. And uh, it wasn't like a, a real human form, but I got the feeling that it was some type of uh, an, an entity. You know, it wasn't just a bright light. And there shouldn't have been a bright light there anyway. 
And it was very warm. And the most incredible feeling was that I didn't worry. I, I wasn't worried about being sick. I didn't feel sick. I just felt fine. I, I just was like uh, in, in total joy and happiness. And, and I went back to sleep and slept very soundly. When I woke up, I was completely fine. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sick at all. My neck wasn't sore. I was no fever. And my grandmother and my mother said, I told them what I saw. And they said, that was your guardian angel. That was an angel. And the angel healed you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thank God. And Because there's no hospitals near there. A yeah. lot of people, they get sick. That's just it. They got a call for a doctor to come to the island. And, you know, they have to take a ferry. And, you know, it takes a mm-hmm. long time. Uh, or you got to get in a boat and they take you to the... Uh, it's it's a kind of situation where guardian yeah. angels are especially helpful. They're, yes, in this case, very much so. So I, I survived that. So that, that was my first experience that I, that I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there was th- things earlier. Yeah. But that's w- what I really have a, a real clear memory of. So I think what it did is kind of open the floodgates of possibilities. And that's mm-hmm. when, you know, I, I think the aperture opened, I guess you would call it. And, uh, but it was, it wasn't by choice. I wouldn't always say, okay, now I'm going to talk to see angels or now I'm going to talk to dead people or whatever. It would just happen randomly, but frequently mm-hmm. my whole, my whole life. Yeah. So now a lot of people these days mm-hmm. report when, when they do surveys of people's yeah. uh, spontaneous paranormal yeah. experiences, yeah. what, what they find is that many of the people who report a lot of these mm-hmm. experiences also report, uh, trauma and abuse mm-hmm. in, in their childhood. Yeah. And, and that's an, it's an interesting question. I write about in the second book, I stuck my neck out a little bit farther and I do talk about that. I mm-hmm. talk about an experience, uh, I, uh, the name of the story is my Nazi aunt. Mm-hmm. So, and I did have an actual Nazi aunt. She wasn't a neo-Nazi. She was in the Gestapo in Oslo, the capital city uh, of Norway, and she worked with uh, Colonel Famer, who was the head Gestapo guy in Oslo. And uh, she, her specialty was luring members of the underground into traps, mm-hmm. and that's what she did. Mm-hmm. And she was responsible for probably nine. Uh, members of the resistance being caught and tortured and captured and mm-hmm. killed ultimately. And, uh, so she was made a very bad choice. Uh, on the other hand, my dad was in a labor camp, forced labor camp. And that was her, my, uh, this, my aunt was my dad's younger sister. Mm-hmm. And his older brother was a convoy commander. So he was a war hero. My dad was in a work camp and here she is working for the other, the other side. So after the war, she is given a, uh, a death sentence for um, collaborating with the enemy uh, for war crimes, you know, actual war crimes. Uh, my uncle, my dad's oldest brother, used his reputation and all of his money to get that, uh, to get a good lawyer. They got it commuted to life. Mm-hmm. And then later, after nine years, he was able to get her out of prison for, for psychiatric reasons. Mm-hmm. I, I always said, my dad always said, too, she was crazy like a fox. Mm-hmm. She got herself out of there. Uh-huh. But she was a very unusual lady, and, and she was a very attractive lady, uh, always well put together, uh, you know, the, the latest fashions and everything. She always looked much younger than she was. Anyway, um, fast forward to my Nazi aunt story. Uh, in Seattle, I was probably 15 years old. She was visiting, and uh, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, and she was in my room. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't supposed to be in my room. I was downstairs she was upstairs with her husband, my uncle, and my parents. And so I, I knew, I had a feeling that something had happened that wasn't appropriate. And the weird thing was that I have this memory that there were these 
these like things around her. It wasn't just her. It was, I saw these little beings and I don't, I don't, I couldn't say for sure what they are, but I remember seeing them around her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that was probably an example of some type of, uh, uh, you know, sexual abuse. Of course, you were already 15. I'm already time. 15. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're, you're a teenager by then. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I gather that for a lot of children, these yeah. sorts of events occur at a much earlier age. Yeah. And it's, and I, I've had, uh, I had another experience when I was probably, oh, I'm going to say probably a, a few years before that. I wasn't a teenager. Uh, and uh, we were going into those woods that I told you about by our house. My whole life's growing up is defined by these woods, you know, mm-hmm. both adventure and great times and not so good times. So we had gone out into the woods, me and my little friends, and uh, went a little too far. And a little too far, meaning that we we weren't familiar with the area. Well, these older kids tracked us down, mm-hmm. and there was always, you know, that element out there. And we were kind of in a junky area and they captured us Mm -hmm. and they were throwing rocks at us and torturing us. And I remember they were old enough. They were like drinking and smoking cigarettes and stuff. And I got hit in the head and I think I was uh, probably abused Mm -hmm. by one of those older kids. Mm -hmm. I never talked to my little buddies about it. We never Mm -hmm. talked about it, which is not unusual for people that have gone through trauma to not talk about it. So uh, I was probably, I don't know, maybe eight years old or so Mm -hmm. at that point. And I've often thought about, and I've had somebody ask me that question, do you think that some of the paranormal stuff is because of, or do you think the paranormal stuff is because of your traumatization? And I, I said, no, it, is, it was happening before. In your case. Yeah, in, yeah. In, this, in this case. But I could see where it could affect it, and I think it probably did have some of an Im- mm-hmm. uh, somewhat of an impact on it. My that, own some. hypothesis yeah. is, is that it works this way, that mm-hmm. uh, a young child can uh, begin to experience abuse at the age yeah. of in- infancy, two years old or younger even. Right, right. It, c- it can happen that soon, and when it does happen like that, it probably happens more frequently than we realize, mm-hmm. and sometimes maybe parents aren't even aware that this right. is... What, what's going on because it's something they also endured as children. Right. Uh, but in any case, it causes a child to realize that the external, what we call the physical world, mm-hmm. is not entirely safe. Right. So, so they retreat into an inner world, and mm-hmm. they can open up doorways in, yes. in their mind if they're persistently mm-hmm. retreating inwardly. And when they open up those doorways, mm-hmm. uh, it can trigger uh, visionary experiences and yes. intuitions and also legitimate experiences of what parapsychologists call psi. Mm-hmm. I, no, I, I I believe so. I believe it had the aperture was already open, so I was already arbitrarily already experiencing yeah. things, and that just accelerated, amplified it, and, mm-hmm. and opened it some more. And I did retreat uh, somewhat, you know. I, I and actually, that's where a lot of my writing started. I started writing a lot, and I, I remember that uh, my parents knew that I was kind of in this inner world, so they got me a typewriter, uh, this old manual Royal typewriter, when I was probably 10 years old, maybe earlier than that. And I started typing and, um, and I, and I got to the point where I was pretty good at the typing. And, uh, my dad who he could speak English, but he couldn't write English. So every once in a while he was a carpenter and, uh, he needed to work with the, you know, some government agency or town or something. He said, I need this. Can you write this letter for me? So I'd type it for him at age 10. I'm writing Uh letters for my father. In English. In in English. Yeah. 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 He'd tell me in Norwegian. I'd write it in English. Uh 
So and, you knew both languages. Yeah, as I grew a child. up in both languages. Yeah, uh-huh. and and I think that probably helps too as well because there's I know when I speak Norwegian. I feel like I'm a different person, not a totally different person, but my, my vocabulary is different. The way I look at things is different. And, uh, you know, uh, English has a much larger, you know, selection of words. Norwegians tend to be more earth, you know, earthy and mm-hmm. oriented towards the ocean, you know, that kind of stuff and, and, and very spiritual in a mm-hmm. sense too. And so it's a, it's almost like you're a different person. I think you're using, I don't know if it's actually a different part of the brain or whatever. I don't understand enough about it, but I feel that way mm-hmm. when I'm speaking Norwegian. And uh, and I think that might help enhance uh, a person's psychic ability as well, uh, having uh, you know being bilingual and bicultural and yeah. that type of thing. So in in your course mm-hmm. on personal paranormal history, as your students are describing some of their childhood experiences, mm-hmm. do they also get in touch with uh, periods of abuse as children? Some of them have mentioned it. Uh, let's see, not. Right away, like the people who have taken the class more than once, I think they feel more comfortable. It's kind of uh-huh. what I did with my books, too. The first one I didn't mention, the second yeah. one I, I did. So I, I think they, they get comfortable at a certain point, and then they, you know, they need to build on that to be brave enough to come forward. Mm-hmm. But uh, not a whole lot of them. I suspect there are more stories out there. They just... Yeah. And I think that uh, by me telling my story, that helps them to tell theirs. So I feel like what I'm doing, whatever these talents are, I I just call them gifts. I don't call them talents because I don't want to make myself out to be anything special. I think everybody has abilities. Somebody asked me once, well, what is the difference between somebody who's had all these experiences that you had and just an average person? And I said, well, I think everybody, I use a baseball analogy. Everybody can throw a ball, but some people can throw it 90 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And then for whatever reason, you know, that's yeah. that's just the way it is. A person can become better at it, you know. Mm-hmm. And even people who are very adept can become even better. But uh, I think there are – there's a certain set of responsibilities that come with that. And that's uh, – I think that's a big part of this, learning – that learning curve, you know, learning what – how you're supposed to be using these gifts. Mm-hmm. It's it, it, There's a real moral question there. Does that become a focus of your class? We do talk about that. Yeah, we talk about, okay, if you have these abilities and, and you know that if, if, if you have the ability to maybe influence somebody, are you going to use that for something good, you know, something helpful, or are you going to use it for your own manipulative gain, you know? And uh, I, I try to impress upon them that once you go down the road of, you know, manipulation and stuff like that, it's, uh, it's a very slippery slope to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like when I talk to students about dehumanization, you know, it starts with just calling somebody a dirty name. Next thing you know, you're treating them differently. Next thing you know, there's codification of that, you know, put into law. Next thing you know, there's segregation. Next thing you know, there's extermination. So it just, it's a very slippery slope. And I think we have to be very cautious when you have certain abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and working with people's emotions, when they, people come up to me and say, can you get in touch with my dead relative? You know, I don't, ever take any money for that i just i just do it out of a courtesy i feel like it's my responsibility to do it if i have time to do it you know and 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 i I feel it's a moral obligation i'm not against people who do take money for it if that's their living you know whatever but for me i teach i have a full-time job so i just do it to be friendly and nice Mm -hmm. to people and 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 uh yeah and i tell my students how i do it the process i use and Mm -hmm. stuff so i think there is um 
that that is a big part of it, and also protecting yourself, mm-hmm. I, which I stress a lot. So in your class, there is a sense among some of these students that th- this is a, a gift that they uh, can carry with them into the future and learn how to work with. Yes, uh, and it, it's it's a very important part of it that they I, I give them the, you know this this idea that they can they can use this for good they can use it for their own self for their family for their friends and uh to to make things better for them but to be cautious about use of it as well and uh so i i, I think they it's amazing how even though they're different ages different backgrounds they have uh this they already have that innate sense that this is very this is a very important thing that we're all going through. And they they all seem to have a feeling like there's, and I, I have this feeling too, and a lot of people who are intuitives and so forth get this feeling that there's some kind of paradigm shift going on. Um, and they, they catch on to that mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Once we start putting everything together, they say, ah, okay, now that makes sense, you know. So uh, it, it's it, it's a fascinating class for so many different reasons. Uh, and I, I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy teaching history still to, you know, mainly younger students, but I, I also enjoy these, these older students. They're mostly older students, mm-hmm. although we do have a few younger ones. Well, Dr. Bruce Solheim, mm-hmm. this has been a fascinating mm-hmm. discussion. I think particularly useful for people in our viewing audience who either are children or who have mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. who are going through uh, these experiences. Thank you so much for coming to Albuquerque and sharing this with oh, me. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.